Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Nicolas Glinsman, CEO of Evo Capital, a macro specialist and commentator on geopolitics, politics, and history. Thank you for joining the podcast, Nicolas. I, I believe you're currently somewhere in Brazil. Uh, how are things in South America? Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, it, uh, Latin America is quite a bit behind uh, Europe and the US in terms of vaccination. The, the I just don't, it's very, Brazil itself, I'm finding a bit of a conundrum insofar as the central bank is raising rates aggressively and overshooting to, to quell inflation. But there's a bit of a fiscal crisis and the bond market had a very severe adjustment last week. And I, I'm sort of at a loss to wonder what they're thinking. Um, and then also, you know, just generically in Latin America, the harder it gets for China to escape what I believe is, you know, the typical emerging market middle-income trap, uh, the more Latin America, which has really sold itself to the Chinese, will suffer economically. So it's, a, it's an interesting situation. And I say about the vaccinations about it, with regards to Brazil, Brazil has an excellent system of vaccinating. So, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a yellow fever scare. You just go to the local center, get your shots flu get your shot or they go around uh here it's been a combination of not getting enough of pfizer moderna astrazeneca and there's no pushback against astrazeneca really um the pushback really occurred and should have occurred and rightly occurred with the chinese vaccine at coronavac the chinese vaccines have you know they're just it's you might as well toss a coin and unfortunately i mean I had my first AstraZeneca here, being British. <laughs> I insisted that we were going to have the AstraZeneca. And also, I'm, I'm a little more comfortable with the vector, the old-fashioned the old vector method, as opposed to the new mRNA for the time being. And I follow very closely the advice of what people in, in the UK have been telling me, my you know, colleague, old colleagues, etc. cetera. Uh, but a couple of days after my first shot, having been really careful for the whole period, that was in May, my three boys got COVID, I got it, and I'm suffering rather like Lewis Hamilton, even though there's no real comparison between the two of us. So I have long COVID, uh, and it manifests itself in me with, um, I, I suffered a, a severe depletion of my leg muscles. So I'm sort of, I got to the point, I look like I'm learning to walk again. So, you know, it's been unpleasant. Um, however, you have to keep your humor. That's the way it is. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I think one of the solutions to this is going to be better therapeutics. You know, the vaccines will progress ultimately. And I think we, you know, I just, I'm wondering whether the Delta variant is part of your typical process in a virus, in a pandemic, where the new variants become more contagious and less deadly. And I think we've seen that with, with a lot of the numbers. Um, you know, it was always going to be a case of vaccinated people were going to catch it again. But the great news there is it does, the vaccines, all of them seem, of the, the three principal ones, seem to mitigate, you know, the severity of the illness. So that's fine. So I, I, I'm, my only concern is um, being more of a Thatcherite in, in political bias. I, I, you know, this control by the governments is just extraordinary. And what we are seeing, I mean, I, I, you know, when you think that two of the best rug, centres of rugby football, rugby union, Australia and New Zealand, and all my Australian and New Zealand friends are, are really tough cookies, to see how this government is nanny-stating everything is just extraordinary. And it was very uncomfortable for a lot of my friends and family back in the UK when that they were going through that, um, so I think uh, you know. But there again, I I always view that once governments have that amount of control, they ain't going to get rid of it. And uh, that you know, we, we were talking about this off air just beforehand. That you know, that's why I just don't think the governments are going to let cryptocurrencies run wild. They they're not going to lose one. They don't want that as a challenge. Two, they don't want it to create any systemic risk. And, you know, as we said uh, off air earlier, you know, 50 years ago, you had Nixon come off the gold standard, breaking the link with gold, 
breaking the restriction on gold. We're not in a world where we can course it the fact the world's economic system anymore, which is what a, a supposedly restricted supply reserve asset would do. And I say supposedly in terms of crypto, crypto is not restricted. You get a new coin all the time. So, you know, that's a fallacy. So I, I suspect that um, one, the central banks will do digital. Two, I, I, I'm wondering, I put in a suggestion to people close to the British product, project on the, the CBDC, that if you're going to go down that route, and I know full well that the Federal Reserve always looks at the research done by the Bank of England, they're pretty twinned, pretty much twinned, especially when you think that there was an Englishman on the first board of the Federal Reserve, Paul Warburg. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I made the suggestion, given you've got onshore domestic US dollars and offshore what they call euro dollars, the offshore dollars, the Bank of England could easily create a CBDC in euro dollars, which would then be fungible with the US version when it comes. That would be very interesting because if the bank did that, that would, um, it would it, I suspect it would be used by what I define as the Anglosphere, so the old Commonwealth. So, and that again would ensure that the US maintains the financial weapon of mass destruction, which is the US dollar reserve currency status, which it will anyway. But, I'm, you know, that would just enforce. I mean, I've got no, you know, th this idea, I, I suspect that the Chinese E Yuan has nefarious motives behind it anyway. I just, you know, if, if people aren't taking Remimbi right now on Belt and Road, why are they going to use, are the Chinese going to impose that? It's just the same as imposing trying to impose payment in their domestic currency, which is not just not working. You know, Belt and Road contractors don't want remembering. <laughs> they usually want dollars. So, sorry, that was a, a sidetrack right from the beginning. Right from no, the get -go. no, no, this is, a, this is actually good because you're answering some of my last questions. First, I actually had a question about your thoughts on the authoritarian. Well, I am in the Southern Hemisphere, so that would be logical. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I, I had the question about the, your, your thoughts on the authoritarian uh, COVID government uh, policies and protocols, which I think, I mean, a lot of people are are seeing it, which is it's it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, they're restricting free speech, they're restricting freedom of movement, and, and all this well, sort of thing. I look, um, I, look. I think Sweden has a great model. They never close down, never impose mass mandates. Swedish society is somewhat different. I wouldn't trust British society to totally. Act. Youngsters don't act responsibly, so that's fine. But you know. I, I've always felt that if you actually respect the population and educate them in a non-political, unbiased way, because science has always been political, by the way. You've always had groups of competing theorists. It's a very political discipline, science. So why would it be any different now? What really shocked me about, about uh, the beginning of COVID was it wasn't just the UK government. It was the European governments. It was also the, um, let me just, sorry, that was a ping. And, and it was also the U.S. took so much weight of the Imperial College model under Dr. Neil Ferguson, not the historian. I mean, he's got it wrong since the get-go. Mad cow disease. Asian. I mean, every model he's ever done, it cost, I think, with the mad cow disease and the slaughter of the, uh, the British um, bovine population, it cost the government about £10 million pounds back a couple of decades ago. So, you know, the reliance on someone, and the model never changed. I mean, that was the extraordinary thing. Um, and I just, you know, on the free speech side, where I'm so uncomfortable is what, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm, I, I use social media, but I think you may have noticed, I, I what, 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 we, what my group, the group that I'm involved with, you know, uh, Harold Malmgren, Albert, Marco, Tony Nash, Tracy Schuart, uh, Giovanni Ponzetto, and a few others. What we focus on is these are the facts. If the facts are this, either this is the resolution or this is going to be the outcome. And, you know, without any political bias, when Biden won the election, if you just go back and look at Biden's record, 
One, he's arrogant. Two, he's always tried to impose his foreign policy view on everybody else. And three, to quote, unquote, Obama, you can rely on Joe Joe to F up everything. One. Secondly, you know, in terms of the... So the last election in the UK, December 2019, which gave Boris Johnson a massive majority, what happened in the UK is the Labour Party swung way to the left. You know, and Jeremy Corbyn actually does have a good relationship with Bernie Saunders. That tells you how far left Bernie is, by the way. Quasi-Marxist. His, his shadow chancellor of the Exchequer actually threw Mao's red book onto the centre in the House, House of Commons and said, perhaps you should read this. Okay. Now, there's a lot wrong with that. You know, we, we, we can go through so many historical examples as to what would be bad about a lot of their policy. So I take that as an example. And so to equate Jeremy Corbyn and the Corbynistas as progressives, the terminology used in the States always befuddles me. Liberal is not meant to be very left-wing. It's more centrist, um, you know, in the tradition of, say, the FDP in Germany, well, liberal free marketeers. So, but we'll just say, very left-wing progressives. So after the election, where he got slaughtered, the Labour Party got slaughtered, Corbyn comes out and says, we may have lost the election, but we won the argument. Okay, now, convert, extrapolate that to the US situation. Biden was just a happy face to win the election. They just won the House. They just equated on the Senate. But the progressives are now about 90 in the House. And you're going to see policy there. Well, you're going to, you, actually, I think what you're going to get is gridlock. I take the foreign policy debacle of Afghanistan, which was absolutely obvious the way it was done. And you knew it's clear he didn't listen to anybody, or he was listening to people who are just not very good. Okay, which uh, having he's having replaced all of the Pentagon generals and the, the heads with his own people. So he replaced efficient people who actually somewhat controlled the previous president with people that were just political cronies. Okay, so that's a disaster in, in the making. And if you t take uh, Austin in, in uh, Secretary of Defense, he was a logistics general, not a field general. So it gives you an idea. But if you take this debacle in the foreign policy, that now will weigh on domestic. You, if you're a moderate Democrat up for re-election next year, you're not going to tie yourself to Joe Biden, period. So I think what you had, had, have had happen over those last couple of weeks is that wall of, between the progressives and the moderate Democrats has got higher and higher. There's your border wall, right? That's, that's, so I, <coughs> our view is that, in fact, and this will lead into the economics, um, it doesn't matter what the Senate's passed. Pelosi has tied the infrastructure bill bipartisan, which could pass the House on its own. She's tied that to the reconciliation bill, which I define as a social and green gods plan per the, the Soviets in the old day. And she's also tied it to the deficit. Well, okay. I don't see any of this being resolved by late October, until late October at the earliest. So you have gridlock. So you're going to have a fiscal cliff coming into the rear view. You've got, today we had the PMIs in Europe and the US. One, they all surprised to the downside, some more than others. Two, the message has been consistent from the, from the IHS market that supply shortages prevail, worker shortages prevail. It's consistent across Europe as well as the US. You've now got the Delta variant. We had several months, literally three, four months ago, said, watch how the Democrats will use COVID to impose a fear, project fear, possibility of lockdowns in the winter. We got poo-pooed for that. Now look what's happening with the Delta variant. And the final, so we don't think, for example, the Fed will do quantitative tightening. They'll talk about it. They could even start it. Who knows? They could start it. 
Um, it's going to be reversed and they'll be doing more QE. And I think that form of QE will be quite revolutionary it, using more tools as are used in Japan. Remember, there's that Japanification of the US system. We're, we're halfway there anyway. Um, there's illiquidity in the US Treasury market because there's very, you know, the Fed owns 65% of the 20 to 30 year bond sector. Um, so if you have that Jap Japanification, and the, the Japanese have often been leaders uh, of revolutionary monetary policy. So back in the 30s, I think it was Tokushida. I'm not going to hang my hat on the name. He had been he had been finance minister. He was from a noble family. He became Bank of Japan governor, was doing QE there, then got assassinated by the generals when he wanted to stop. Anyway, so uh, the Japanification. So what have the Japanese done? They've done, you know, you don't you have days where you don't see the Japanese government bond market register a trade. So there's something. You have yield curve control. You have de facto money. MMT. I personally think you have MMT in Europe already, particularly for countries like Italy. The ECB has bought everything they've done. So I think that the next round, because each time you have to do something for an emergency level, you get you go you have to go bigger. Having done big, you've got to go bigger now. So I think we could have all sorts of uh, additional Japan style techniques in the QE, I think we get, we get to a level of MMT, where the, the, the Fed is financing the deficit. Um, our view had always been that a crisis would be manufactured to create uh, a sharp downswing in the, in the US stock markets. Now, bear this in mind, with Robin Hood, etc., there's always been a positive correlation between the stock market and the economy in the US. Every time there's a, a slump, CEOs whose pay is linked to stock price performance oftentimes cut costs, cut workers. So there is that. Now with the Robin Hood and the online use of uh, stimulus checks to participate in things like meme stocks and so on and so forth, that link is greater. Okay? So it just strikes me that they're going to end I, I still don't think they'll get to the point of QE. I think there was a bit of a tell, which nobody's talking about, but a couple of people whom I respect a lot. I think it was an initial tell when Jackson Hole, which is this week, was turned into another virtual meeting. Well, you don't announce tapering at a virtual meeting, <laughs> right? The other thing that I've been focused on is how people don't listen to Jerome Powell. He's been focused on Black and Hispanic unemployment. Now, yes, it improved last month, but everything improved. It was a stellar set of numbers. But why would the Fed, given their de facto third mandate, why would the Fed settle at 8 or 7.5% Black Hispanic unemployment when the generic number is down at 5, for example? Is that an acceptable differential? No, obviously not. So, I, 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 I'm doubtful they'll get to the point where they can execute. They'll talk about it as much as they want until that stock market crisis is manufactured. Okay. I, and we're not ready yet. We needed Congress to come back. And I think really first couple of weeks of September, the month of September is a good time to start being very anxious about the stock market for say a 20% correction in the S&P. And the correction will be swift. We're in a world that everything moves much quicker than it used to, including news, of course. Um, now, if, if they revert from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing, the, the, the journey there, I suspect we have that correction. So you want to be out of the stock market. You, don't, you want to be in the dollar. Uh, I think the dollar can go up another 3 to 5% in that correction phase. You don't want to be in commodities. But as we've come to the bottom, we see that the Fed is shifting towards, we can't let this happen. There's not going to be any fiscal. We don't think the big deal gets done at all. That's just not going to happen. And then you wor worry about what Nancy Pelosi does. Because if you recall, 
she played election on the on a big fiscal package that was agreed. She played election with it, and she they didn't pass anyway. That doesn't happen, so it becomes clear that the Fed has to step in in place, which is pushing on a string, to be honest with you. Um, on that basis, you go back to the same trades that worked back in April, May last year, which is exactly what we're setting out. I would say that regardless of the correction that's impending, in our view, over the next two, three years, you will see commodity prices at you know, much higher levels. And the r- rationale for that is everybody's, we, we, we've got used to China being the dependent marginal extra demand on um, commodities. Now, if we're looking at China slowing down and China having middle income problems, and clearly something negative is going on because of the way she's behaving. Um, I wish people would stop messaging me whilst I'm talking to you. Anyway, that's what that's the ping, and that's what what, what shaking the moving the. Anyway, so um, so back to China. Even if you take out that marginal extra demand, they've got a basic demand that they need, and they can't produce it. There's food shortages there for sure. It gets replaced by green renewable. Now, what? So pretty much, we're going to have the same end, end result, if not even a higher demand. For some some of the stuff that you know copper aluminium so on and so forth even if you think of crude oil between now and getting to where where they want us to get if we get back to a normalized world where we're all flying again just that dem- increase in demand from global airlines for jet fuel could send crude oil significantly higher i've got a my target is actually $100, but I think we can go well north like we did in 2008. Now, the reason this time, though, it's not just the, assume demand's stable because we've replaced the marginal in China with ESG. It's supply. We're in a different paradigm. People have been used to demand driving everything plus technology. This time, though, that dem- it's supply because there's no capex in industrial metals. There's no capex in, in fossil fuels. There's no capex in nu- nuclear. Maybe for some reason, nuclear is not in anymore, even though that is the answer to everybody's renewable energy uh, direction, direct directive. So we're not getting supply, and demand is going to stay at a high level. Okay, so that's inflationary. So I, I, I think we are going to find ourselves, and also pre-COVID, global economy was beginning to slow down. I think we end up in a stagflationary world. And you've got central banks in a black, the black hole of monetary policy. It's yeah. not a good place. Yeah, I had a question about that. I've had guests that generally uh, agree with your assessment. And then I, I have others, and as well as other people that I read that perhaps have a more uh, alarmist take where they talk about this hyperinflation crack up boom that that's imminent and i've talked to people who have been talking about this for like 10 or 20 years and we haven't seen it yet uh, what are your thoughts on well, you, uh-huh. for, for for the us dollar country the country of the reserve currency you can't have hyperinflation no it's not actually not possible okay um other place well i think third world absolutely get hyperinflation because the worst now if we get this massive easing by the us we've had the dollar go up in in a risk-off environment the dollar will then come back down i'm sort of thinking we come back so i'm using the dollar in us dollar basket the 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 dxy dixie so we're currently 93 even and that's with a fall off of half percent today we had up until recently said dollar stays 88, 92 at max 93. Now, between now and the next whack of QE or monetary policy easing by the Fed, that risk of crisis will likely push the dollar to somewhere around 97. We could well overshoot and get much higher, of course. Uh, it depends what the you know how people fight it. Then when we get the QE. I, I, everybody's said, well, if there's more QE, it's here, the dollar's value is going to collapse. I'm just sitting here sort of thinking, actually, we could get back to 
1892. Just sit there. Uh, I, you know, because I think a lot of there's a lot of emotion involved in everything as well. So I just think it you know it would be negative for the dollar as an immediate reaction, but people forget everything is relative. So if the US is having to do that, what the hell's Europe gonna do with a central bank that is not your typical bank hot central bank? It is not your lender of last resort. Even though it's very political and politically aligned to Brussels. I think we're going to have Birkin pushback for more sovereignty by the countries. Um, there's no doubt in my mind. They'll try and stop it, but their their own COVID debacle, which was the vaccines. You see, there's not there's not a lot of press about it. There still isn't a lot of press about it at the moment. But their cock up at the beginning on the vaccines, which was a complete display of incompetence by Brussels. Actually, you could probably quantify how many people it killed. That's not a great political message. That will be a message used under each election after the German. Um, in terms of, you know, so there's that. Then there's a political unrest saying France has got an election next year. There's big the French love to demonstrate and they love what they view as their constitutional right to liberty which Macron is just throwing down all the time, that's going to be quite quite a noisy affair. And I think as we get back after all this month, when the French get back to work after their holidays, you know, we've had big demonstrations in Paris, and this is the holiday season. You wait till everybody's back. And it's not, it's not a fringe group demonstrating either. It's everybody, you know, friends of mine have been in that demonstration. It's old, young, right, left. You know, I mean, extraordinary mix of people in those demonstrations. And I think likewise, you've seen it in Holland. Um, I think the Italians, they've had demonstrations, particularly in the north, which you would sort of expect be similar to the French. South has not been so, so demonstrable. So, so I think there's a lot of, you've got governments that don't want to give back freedom. You've got the virus and a lot of misinformation. You've got a global economy that looks like it's going to revert back to the pre-COVID situation. You've got the wealthy that have done extremely well out of COVID. I'm just not convinced things are that good right now. And I'm an optimist. <laughs> this is my optimistic take. Um, but at the same time, if you're involved in the financial markets, uh, the good thing is macro is back, but you have to... You know, typically macro starts with interest rates. Well, less so this time. I mean, you know, if you want to have the reflation trade, maybe you don't go short treasury market, but you go long commodities. That's a reflation trade. Or even better still, you go long companies that do the commodities because you get a higher beta, better performance. Um, so that that's that's sort of my view of the globe. I mean, you've also got these lunatic situations going back to Australia and New Zealand, they're locked. I mean, how self-destructive is that? I never understood this argument of, of complete lockdowns as opposed to take care of the vulnerable people at all costs first and let everybody be very responsible. But you can't kill an economy. You know, there's going to be a cost-benefit analysis by some academics at some point that show that the cost-benefit of lockdown, well, there's been very little benefit but huge cost. The cost-benefit of unemployment, that's an unhealthy situation. Closed businesses, people who've died or who've not had this, their corrective surgery because the hospitals have been locked down. I mean, I, I just found this whole thing really very confusing in the extreme. Mm -hmm. From, And I know quite a few politicos, and they're very rational people, and some of them just bought into this. And it, it, I found that very worrying actually that's the the worst that come out of this and now we're seeing you know um a situation where the leader of the free world probably is not in control of everything he's he's doing to be honest with you i always thought when he won the election it was a pop there's a politburo of five people controlling policy there yeah uh, and it's not not him yeah, I, I wanted to go back to to the U.S. and just get your thought again. Um, we have yeah. the the midterms. I think next year. Do you see like any 
we're talking about the economy and economic crisis. You see any great political crisis coming forward? And as well, you mentioned Afghanistan, and we're starting to see articles being published now talking about the fall of uh, U.S. empire. Do you see do you see this big blow now to the prestige and status uh, of the U.S. politically? And do you see any kind of you know, people talk about civil war and stuff? I mean, some form of it. Do you see in the years ahead any huge political crisis no, situation no because i don't think china steps into the void and russia is too small and insignificant in that respect yes they can cause trouble in certain hotspots but i think what you've seen uh, let's let me give you an example of the chinese so they work very closely in inverted commas with the pakistanis if you go and look at the press and dig you will find there's been riots where that bomb exploded in pakistan was in a port the port region of Gwandar. Well, this was meant to be developed by China, by the Chinese. The Chinese are there. Um, and so are the Chinese fisheries. And that's where all the trouble started. So that's where you got pushback. And it's the, the regional liberation army that's now attacking the, the Chinese. Uh, I think people over expect, you know, over expect from the Chinese. Taiwan. If they were going to attack Taiwan, they would have done it already. Tai, she cannot afford to a military escapade like Taiwan because he knows full well that the Taiwanese will give them a really bloody nose, the attacking forces. You're not talking Hong Kong. You're talking going into an island of 20, 24, 25 million people. And you're talking about going into the island with violence. I think most of the population rises up against that. So, but, you know, just that process of landing, one, that's going to be very bloody for the PLA. Secondly, the other thing that people forget about that area is the next island chain above Taiwan are the Japanese, who have a navy that just, the numbers are, much, are smaller than the Chinese, but, you know, infinitely more effective, powerful navy than the Chinese. Chinese have the numbers, but a couple of months ago, uh, uh, a Japanese um, coastal guard, it wasn't even a, you know, one of their major ships, forced a Chinese submarine to surface. It was near the Senkaku Islands. So people overestimate the ability of the Chinese in that respect. They should, why haven't they done it already? This is the question, right? Why not do it now with what's going on in, in Afghanistan? No, they're not doing it. Uh, so I, I think that's the reason. I think she's under a lot of pressure. Um, and there are a lot, he has a lot of enemies, clearly. That's why you've now got what is what I've termed as universal basic income with Chinese characteristics, right? You know, prosperity to be shared, and but the wealthy will be left with very little except for either four walls or, you know, a memorial from their family. Um, so I, I think people just overestimate the ability of the Chinese. Africa is going to be interesting, but you know what's interesting about Africa, which is where the Chinese and the Russians are quite active at the moment and intend to be more active, is these countries have historical ties to the ex-colonialists. Now, that may not be a popular word in the US, but actually it still means stuff in Africa. So a very simple example in the past is several years ago, the government of Sierra Leone requested military help from the British to calm down the civil unrest, and it worked peacefully. It worked peacefully, okay? So on that basis, um, there's a lot of leverage we had from the British, the French, the British and the French in particular, um, and I think you'll see, you know, Kenya, there's been some interesting announcements made by the British and the Kenyans recently in cooperation. So I, I think there's enough of a pushback. I don't think it's a free ride for the Chinese under any sense of the word. I also, let me get, let me throw out another con contrarian view. Um, someone I, I have huge respect with, uh, Valina came up with the term dragon bear. Okay. Hmm. Like, I'm not convinced anymore. It's worked very well, but 
the Chinese are exploiting Siberian forests, much to the chagrin of the local Russians in that part of Russia. When Vladivostok celebrated its centenary, there was a very nasty message from the Chinese to the, to the Russians. That's not yours, that's ours. You took it from us. Um, and I think my, my thought process is actually Afghanistan will not be uh, a route for further close work between them because that's right in Russia's backyard. By the way, talking of Afghanistan and China, you know, we had no military casualties for 18 months on the US side. I think somewhat longer for the British. You had this huge military intel center on the Chinese border, and you just said, Phew. "But Chinese, your biggest system, systemic uh, rival," and you get. I mean, you know, it, and it really wasn't a forever war because it had been quiet. It wasn't. It wasn't. You can't blame the Afghan military because they lost immediate on Biden's announcement. They lost air support. They lost mm-hmm. the contractors that maintain their own air force, so they couldn't even place it. Mm-hmm. And the army had been trained according to the U.S. model. Okay, so but the strategic, you know, Biden puts a lot of weight in his foreign policy experience, and that doesn't seem like it was really thought out too well. If China is the big rival. And you have that center there. And if you really wanted to create a little bit of internal turbulence, and they're not a, you know, this is not something that, that they wouldn't do because they've done it in the past, you help the Uyghurs surreptitiously. So, a lot of it just doesn't make sense. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not, I'm not bullish on our current crop of political leaders in most places. That reminds me of, I think it was the U.S. NATO who bombed Chinese embassy in, in, in Belgrade back in the 90s. Um, I, and you're right. Yeah, I, I very much like Valina Chaparova's work. I had a question. Uh, speaking of China, one of your other colleagues, you mentioned Tony, Tony Nash, whose work I, I really enjoy as well. He mentioned on Twitter, I think. I, I'm not sure how serious he was that Belt and Road is basically dead. So a lot He's of people. Very serious. Very serious. And again, that, that opens the door. To the ones that are really pushing back against this practically, because the U.S. hasn't been um, or was beginning to, and then we had the Biden administration coming, but the Japanese are offering alternatives to Belt and Road financing. And they're also, where the U.S. was helping, I don't know whether it's continued, but the U.S., U.K., and Japan were providing legal help to so that sovereign nations could find ways out of the Japanese debt if it were paid. You know, one of the things you've seen with, is it Ethiopia? I think it's Ethiopia. Uh, and I could be wrong, so I won't be held to that. Is it Ethiopia? Maybe. Where they, they were meeting with the Paris club. It could actually even be Argentina. Um, or one of the South American countries. Anyway, one of the most indebted third world countries was trying to have IMF debts rescheduled as well as, and the Chinese would not engage with the Paris Club. So people of that, you know, some countries have embraced what the Japanese have done. The other thing I would say is that, you know, if you look at Sri Lanka and you look at where they provide, they basically indebted themselves and the collateral of the port which is in a quite a nice strategic part of the world. Um, people say, well, that pulls gone to China. They forget the idea of nationalization. You get a different regime there, nationalize. What, the Chinese are going to attack you as a country? I'm not sure that's likely to happen, given the proximity to India and the support that the Sri Lankans would get. India is the... This is why the Chinese are so worried. One, they you know, on the border, it's all about water, these clashes. But the Chinese are worried about the Indians. And that's why, and if you really want to take that to the next level, that's why they're terrified of the Quad. You've got a very capable military that will only get stronger in Japan. 
you've got Australia, you've got India, and you've got the US. They should be worried. Um, do you feel any potential for serious conflict of any sort in the near future between some of these big powers? No. The Russians do proxy for the most part. Um, and the Chinese, mm, I, 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 no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. I just don't think the Chinese would dare. You know, if the Chinese did something that really had an impact on the US, you hit them with the ultimate weapon, which is the dollar. And uh, yeah, and I, speaking of that, I want to go back to the beginning. What you mentioned about these central bank digital currencies, uh, you, you mentioned like the Bitcoin, I think what they're calling it, and then the, the Fed coin or or whatever. What if that all went through? Uh, people talk about you know this kind of Chinese style social credit system coming to the U.S. I mean, well, what would that mean for our uh, freedoms? Look, you've already you've already got it in New York social credit system. You got the mandatory vaccine pass. That's a social credit system. It's already there. So it, it would all unify under something, I suggest. But the vaccine passports, I, this is one thing I said right at the beginning of the crisis, we're going to end up with vaccine passports. So you have to get, you know, if you want to travel, you're going to need all social, you're going to need a vaccine passport. I've already got mine. I'm here in Brazil. I've got my certificate, but I put all the details on. I typically use American Airlines. And they had, there's a system they use. It's all there, and you know, if I want to travel, not that I'm physically able to travel right now, be a bit too embarrassing to be honest with you. I'd have to be on roller skates. That's how I get it. I, I, you know what? I should. That's what I should do. Hit the roller skates. Um, but uh, no, I, I think we're already on the path, aren't we? The vaccine passports. That is literally a social credit system. Right. But going further though, beyond the, the the vaccine, do you see it then evolving like to the point where you know, if, if you're if you have wrong think, right, um, that they can potentially turn off your bank account or, or punish sure. you somehow. The, I mean, you know, I, let me put it to you this way. OK, here's an actual, an actual example of social credit with the banks. You've heard of OnlyFans, the website in the UK. Mm -hmm. Now no longer allowing the more risque videos. Well, that was the banks telling them to stop it. Otherwise, you can't bank with us. And they need the banks because it's all digit it's all digitalized payments, not digital. We've already got, by the way, we've already got digital. You got your cards in your iPhone, that's a digital transaction. Takes seconds. Um, so yeah, I do. I mean, I think it's already happening, isn't it? I think yeah. OnlyFans yeah. is your perfect example. It was pressure from the banks. You don't do so, and that's the other thing on 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 the cryptos. Um, in Europe, the banks are not taking proceeds from crypto sales. Uh, once the US has sorted out who's got what responsibility, that's when you're going to see the legislation, and ultimately it will end up with KY know your client KYC, AML documentation, and the killer form 1099, the IRS form. And there you go. I, and that will push it all offshore. Um, so it has to, look, it has to be regulated. It absolutely has to be regulated. If it's not regulated, what's the point? It's a scam for criminals. It's pure and simple. By the way, I still suspect the narco gangs prefer dollar cash than crypto. It's probably safer and i think uh th they're saying now you know u.s government can if they wanted to forensically track um crypto accounts of course they can. So, yeah i mean the, the presumptions that they can't uh is ridiculous um but you know they're also trying to get rid of cash the governments i mean in, in europe you can you, you can only deposit a certain amount of cash you can only withdraw a certain amount of cash so we're going this drive away from cash is all part of you know, what could easily be a social credit system. My biggest concern is that uh, the social media companies have way too much power without giving explanation. And where you see this most, and I have no opinion, I do have an opinion, but I, well, I never express it, 
is those people that kicked off, get kicked off social media in terms of the transgender discussion. You know, you see people 10, years, 10 15, 20 years ago who fought for women's rights, fought against women's violence towards women, and because they have a certain view, they then get kicked off social media. These are heroes or heroines, and they get kicked off social media. We should have, with certain exceptions, of course, complete free speech, each to their own. And you can discuss it. What we have instead is a small, small minority group on social media that has way more power in an anonymous fashion. And that power is then accentuated by those that control social media. And, you know, you get ridiculous stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've pretty much covered the, the fr- uh, waterfront. You've talked about Africa, EU, uh, US, China. I guess one of my last questions would be, I mean, what would be just uh, some rules of thumb, general recommendations for people in terms of generating in wealth or, or protecting in wealth, of- you know, well, going I, forward? I think, look, I think we're on the verge of another screech higher in risk assets. Risk assets, I mean stocks, particularly the US and commodities, okay? I think the dollar will move higher, but we're not quite ready there. And this, this time frame is quite short in the investment cycle. You're talking in the next couple of months, until we get to a 20% correction in the S&P 500, it'll be more in the small cap Russell index. It may be slight, slightly less or equivalent in the NASDAQ 100. Once that comes, you know that the Fed will shift very quickly. And if you combine that with the lack of the big, big fiscal and maybe a lack of all fiscal, once that occurs, just change your positioning from having protected your portfolios or got out of risk assets and just dive into what worked April, May last year. And that would be the, you know, the, big, the mega caps. It, they'll probably take the small caps with it. And, but it's the commodity trade. This is the big one. And I mentioned energy and industrial metals. Less sensitive to dollar direction and less sensitive to risk because it's not widely held. It'll be agriculturals. I think, you know, if you go and buy fertilizer companies, I mean, I've got some companies I, I'd be flying back into right, on, on a, a decent-sized correction. We've made a lot of money. Uh, I've even made money in, in a company called Peabody Energy, which is coal. We put out a recommendation mid-December. I think the price was $1.82. This was a big, was a really big market cap. Uh, it was $1.82. And right now, it's $13.87. That's better than Bitcoin. There you go, right? <laughs> it's better than Bitcoin. I mean, in that respect, that's better than Bitcoin. Uh, and I've got a company at the end of it. Um, but the, the, the two companies that we, we focus on well and did really well of the, ma- you know, the main companies that you'd look at, which became cheap and thus almost mid-sized, was Mosaic, but any of the fertilizers, CF Industries is another one. Uh, and the UK company, it does have an ADR, Glencore. Glencore. What's interesting about Glencore, is even when crude oil went negative, Glencore was making a fortune. It does metals. It does rare earths. It's getting rid of its coal, but it, ha- it, it trades energy. Okay, It originally came out of Mark Rich's uh, effort in Zug. It's also a British quota company, which means that if, if we get that QE, as we, we anticipate, it, it shocks people by what they're going to try and do. And the dollar would have come off, you're then long sterling. It's a nice right. trade because implicit in a foreign ADR is a 50% of is in the currency, effectively. So you're long Glencore, a major commodity player, and you would also be long half that position's got an equivalent attachment to sterling. I would also say that you know, if you if you if you buy into what we're saying, so Iron ore producers. Well, there's the three, there's the two big Australians or three big Australians. And then there's a the big Brazilian. I wouldn't touch the Brazilian. I think because of what's going on with China, 
you'd be, I'd prefer to be long the Australians. So, you, you know, same trades, just, I think, um, just going to be patient. It, it's going to go like this, and then it's going to go, like, from here down, much higher. <laughs> okay? But commodities for the next couple of years, I think, are the big macro trade. And it doesn't matter whether the economy is booming. It's supply paradigm. The supply is, there's not the capex. People are not, the companies aren't making the investments. They did all be, beforehand for China. It killed them in 2008. And they haven't done so since. All right. Um, I think we'll leave it there. You're on Twitter at N Glinsman, and where you provide excellent commentary. And I think your website is in, intelligence quarterly.com which is actually going through a major development upgrade over the next six eight weeks where we'll you know where you know our clients already get stuff but we'll be offering more accessible subscription services is there any other uh website or project we should know about no that's it for the time being i mean we are being approached to actually run money uh because what we've actually you know i've got track records but i can't publish them um but what we've done in the last year is, is make them publicly available. So we actually do have an audit trail <laughs> and it's worked very well. So, you know, Albert puts out stuff. I put out stuff. Albert is at AmLiveMon, A-M-L-I-V-E-M-O-N. He makes his view very well, well known, does Albert. Um, but uh, so we, we, we combine that and, and we're bringing together a really interesting group. So more of that as we, as we move ahead, you'll see various announcements. All right. Yeah, I think I, I follow his work on, on Twitter as well. So, all right. For a big picture of view of what's going on in the world, economy, politics, geopolitics, be sure to follow Nicholas Glinsman. Uh, thank you, Nicholas, for being on Geopolitics and Empire. My pleasure. Anytime. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.